it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 50-11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. When Black History Month rolls around, the one thing I don't look forward to are the number of companies, businesses, organizations who try to fake care about black people for 28 days. Okay, sometimes 29 days. Later on, and I got a story to tell, I have an important black history proverb to share. But for now, let's get to the word of the week, which is performative. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. A story out of Houston caught my eye last week. The Houston Metro, which is the city's transportation arm, decided to honor Rosa Parks with a commemorative seat on some of its transit vehicles. It's a yellow seat that says, in memory of Rosa Parks, on the bus. Deep Negro sigh. Bath and Body Works released soaps and candles that were decorated in, quote, festive African prints, as if when Harriet Tubman was freeing the enslaved, she was holding up a scented eucalyptus rain candle as she freed our people and escorted them to the north. Or perhaps when the enslaved finally arrived at their destination, they took a bath in lavender blossom. After the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, we saw so many companies and corporations tweeting and issuing statements talking about how much they love the blacks. The shady-ass NFL, which is now being sued for its racist hiring practices when it comes to black coaches, had Alicia Keys out there singing Lift Every Voice and Sing the opening weekend of the season. They painted in racism in the end zones, got Black Lives Matter stickers on the helmets, And now for the Super Bowl halftime show, they had Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar, Dr. Dre, Eminem, the first hip hop halftime show, as if that was going to erase the fact that they've had one black team president in 100 years of the NFL's existence. When they have two black coaches in the NFL and have never had a majority black owner. I want white people to take this to heart and even some black people who are in these corporate environments, because this is for the crowd that thinks Nancy Pelosi and them taking a knee and kente cloth wrap is actually meaningful. Black people didn't ask for none of this shit. We don't give a fuck about your candles, your bus seats, your lotions, your soaps, your keychains, your Barbie dolls, your blankets, none of that. What we care about is equity. We care about justice. We care about improving our neighborhoods and building our economic base and strengthening our political power. Save your African print hand creams, invest in black businesses, approve loans to black businesses and black homeowners and give them the same rate that you do white people. Stop paying black men and black women less than what you pay white folks. Promote us to the positions we deserve and give us an opportunity to lead. When you put us on your committees and task forces, don't tokenize our presence just to feel like you've done something. And for God's sake, season your food. We're not here for these empty gestures because we can see your actions and track record. Stop with the performative bullshit. Your word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. My guest today is a young phenom. Best way to describe her. And yet she has an old, delightful soul. 
She's been in several blockbusters, including one that was adapted from one of my favorite childhood books, A Wrinkle in Time. She has a number of projects coming out in 2022, including a dope adaptation of a video game. Y'all, she out here working, working. And can I just also say I love her name? Like it's got firepower, spunk. It just, I'm not surprised she's fulfilling the destiny that she is. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Storm Reed. So Storm, I realized that we had something in, in common other than a love of food, because I know how much you love food and you love to cook. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. We both have met Beyonce and we uh, I heard your Beyonce story. I think you may have told it on The View a while ago. And it was very similar when I met Beyonce. It's like you don't even know what to say to somebody that famous. Right. Right. I was so nervous and it was at the NAACP Awards and it it was speculation that she was going to show up. But, you know, like you never know if she's going to show up or not. And then her and and Jay-Z walk in and of course, everybody goes crazy, but they walk in right before she is presented with her award. So everybody sits down, they proceed with the show. And then I'm like bugging my friend, Niles Fitch, who was on This Is Us to come over uh with me and and introduce ourselves because I'm super shy and super nervous and I was like I can't do this by myself so one one minute Niles is next to me the next he's not and he runs off somewhere I don't know if he got nervous or something else wait so he left you to fend for yourself he did he left me to fend for myself so I I ended up going over and she was having a conversation with another young lady and I hate when people interrupt conversations so I just sit there patiently and she just kind of glances at me and stops her conversation with um the young lady and she was like oh my god my girl blue loves you and I was just like oh my life is made I don't have to do anything else talk to anybody else like a a cloud nine moment for me well probably my most memorable encounter uh this is the first year I lived in LA because I didn't move here till 2018 and I went to Soul Cycle with a friend of mine and her and Jay-Z were in there. Uh, And uh, I met Jay a few times before and um, he, like I saw him first and we were talking and then up comes Beyonce because she apparently was behind him and she was like, hey, sis, what's going on? I love you. And then she hugged me and I felt my whole soul leave my body. I was like, I'm not even, I'm not even here right now. And like you, I was thinking like, y'all can't tell me shit after this. <laughs> like, I was like, nobody talked to me. Beyonce knows who I am. I didn't have to say. Exactly. Name. Like I- I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, I mean, you, you had that experience, but tell me about maybe the first time you, you felt like famous. Cause that's one of those moments where you feel like you're famous. Right. Yeah. I mean, I really don't like the term famous. I know it's a little yeah. weird to me. Um, but the first time I felt as though I was known or, or people knew who I was, um, was after a wrinkle in time came out and, um, the impact it made on little girls. I realized like, Oh, people know my face and, and people know my work. Um, and I'd get DMS or young girls coming up to me and, and they would say, um, thank you for allowing myself to see myself save the world. And that's when I, um, my career was bigger than 
myself, that I wasn't just acting for my dreams and my passions. I was, I was doing work for the global community, for young people that look like me, for young people in general. So um, that's the first time I, I knew that not only people knew who I was, but that I had a mission to continue to be a part of projects that were purposeful and meaningful and impactful. When you did uh, A Wrinkle in Time, uh, how familiar were you with the book? Because I read it growing up and it was one of my favorite books. And I never in my mind imagined Meg as a black character, you know, um, not at all, which is why I thought the movie was just extraordinary. Oh, thank you. Um, I had actually read the book in sixth grade for a book report. Um, and fast forward two years later, I had gotten the audition for Megan Wrinkle in Time. So I was super familiar, super stoked, super stoked to be able to have the opportunity to be in the same room with Miss Ava. But I was genuinely a little confused because I was like, well, Meg doesn't look like me in the book. So are you sure like this is the right audition? And they were like, no, Miss Ava made it a point to say that she wanted a young black girl to portray Meg Murray. And I guess the, the rest is history. And for those listening, Miss Ava would be Ava DuVernay. How, how does she feel about you calling her Miss? I know you call her Miss as well as Oprah and and your other um, sort of coalition of aunties, as you call them. So how, how do they feel about being referred to as Miss? <laughs> I mean, I think everybody loves it. It's so funny, though, because I graduated in 2020 and um, my mom and my sister, like my family, put a whole beautiful graduation video um, together for me with the people who love me. And she was one of the first videos to pop up. And she just congratulated me and said how proud of me she was. And she was like, my gift to you is you've always been my stormy. I've always been your Miss Ava. But now that you are transitioning into this kind of adulthood and, and this new, tr- and new phase in life, you can call me A. And I mean, it, it sounded so sweet and sounded so good, but I still call her Miss Ava. And I think it's just something that it was it was ingrained in me. I was raised to just be respectful. It's a respect thing. I'm from the South. So um, I still call everybody. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, sir. No, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and it's almost like when you were in school and you know, you had a teacher, you're so used to saying, you know, Mrs. Johnston or whatever. And then maybe when you see them years later and you're a little older, like you just can't go from that to like Beverly. Like it just, it just doesn't work. It's so weird. Like my favorite, I think it was my first grade or kindergarten teacher and her name is Miss Morris. And I think she also gave me the, the like, okay to call her by her name. And I was like, no, because I had gone back to my elementary school in 2018 when A Wrinkle in Time came out and went to the school and talked to the kids and she had still worked there. So we talked and had this love fest and she was like, you don't have to call me that anymore. And I was like, yes, I do, Miss Morris. Like you're my favorite teacher and I'm going to continue to call you that. (laughs) Now, um, Miss Oprah is known for being quite the gift giver. Uh, Did she get you something for your high school graduation? 
Not for my high school graduation um, specifically, but when we did wrap A Wrinkle in Time, um, she did gift me a beautiful book. And I think her words are gifts, just her her pieces of advice and her encouragement and just to have her in my presence is a gift. So I, I'm just grateful to have her still um, for her to pour into my corner and we email occasionally. And when I see her, it's always love. So I'm just grateful that she's there and that I can call her one of my aunties per se. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, I should say, like when I say quite the gift giver, I didn't mean from a lavish standpoint. She is just known for very thoughtful gifts in general. So her giving you a book is not a surprise because that seems very much like an Oprah gift. And I always think books are like a great thing to share with people, right? If something touched you. Yeah. So the name of this podcast is Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And a question I ask every guest, and I'm very anxious and eager to hear your answer, is when did you become unbothered? Ooh, um... I think in a sense, I've always been unbothered. Uh, I have always just had the mentality of my mom has always said, some people are going to like you and some people are not going to like you. And that's just the way the world works. And you're going to like some people and you're not going to like some people. Um, And of course, it's hard as a young woman, as a young black woman, as a teenager in the world where we live in the the era of social media and and people are mean and people have the ability to just say things that come to their minds. It's hard, but I, I think I approach it as I know who I am. I know what my heart is. I know how I try to present myself out in the world to people. Um, and if you don't like it, then you can leave it because if, if we don't align, that's fine. We don't have to hate each other. We don't have to have any type of weird feelings towards each other. Um, I just have this mentality of like, I love myself. So um, that's enough. Yeah. I mean, it, it's tough because I think people of my generation have such a different relationship with social media because more than half my life, it didn't even exist. And so it's not, it's something I engage in because that's just kind of what you have to do, especially in this field. But I think for people of your generation, for Generation Z, it is very much the street corner, as in like, that's where y'all hang out. That's where you um, engage. And I always tell people on social media, you know, this is a voluntary experience. I didn't ask you to follow me. You just chose to. Right. <laughs> exactly. So if you don't like something, well, then maybe you shouldn't follow. But um, I'm even, you know, as you pointed out, the negative comments will will be there. Did it take you a while to get to a point to just kind of see them for what they were. Did you have to go through some growing pains before you arrived at this place of being unbothered, particularly as it relates with social media? Uh, I would say yes and no. Of course, when you when you see a hateful comment, sometimes the, the, the comment does hurt and you do think about it all day and you're like, dang, I wish that person didn't say that. Um, but again, going back to Miss Ava and Miss Oprah, uh, when the movie came out, they were like, don't look at what people are saying about it. Like you'll hear the praise, the praise will come to you. It will find you. If people love it, you'll, you will hear that. You will find that out. But they did let me know that everybody might not like it. And people were going to have difficult or negative things to say about it. Um, so I think my uh, approach to being unbothered or, or trying to combat the sadness or the, the feelings of feeling unworthy when someone says something not nice or something that you don't think is 
the right thing to say to somebody is just not look at it. So I try to just not look at the comments. If I do see a nice comment and it's from a homie, I'll respond. It warms my heart. It makes my day. But I do see the bad comments sometimes, but I just choose to ignore it. It's I think for my peace, it's it's better to ignore rather to engage. And you never know what a person's going through all very sage and wise uh, advice that you give or a wise mentality that you have. Well, there have been a lot of good slash great comments about season two of Euphoria. That's for sure. And this is a series that is, you know, really fascinating. And I think <laughs> there's a, a segment, and I, as you probably already know this, it's, it's, it's typically older people where... <laughs> They are scarred from watching this like, damn, is this what kids are going through now? But if we all thought about it, it's like it's really not that much different than what we went through. It's just I think this generation is just far more vocal and in touch with how they feel and with expressing that they're just not always going to be happy all the time. Right. And so that is the part I really dig about it. But nevertheless, you know, for you, I mean, since this is your generation, like how accurate would you say the show is in depicting about what this generation's life is actually like? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it it goes to everybody's experience and everybody's experience is different. Um, and I can't speak for my entire generation. And I thankfully haven't gone through the situations in which the characters in euphoria are going through or have gone through. But I do know people that do go through those similar situations or uh, peers or just people on, on Twitter who talk about the show after an episode airs and, and they say how similar an experience was to their life or an encounter that they had in their life. That is what always brings me back to reality because sometimes I get lost in like, Oh my God, this is too much. Like this is not really happening. Like this can't happen. This is entertainment. This is too heightened. Um, but you have to really have empathy for the people that are saying that this stuff is true. And I, I think my lucky stars that those experiences haven't been mine, but I'm glad to be a part of a show and proud to be a part of a show that depicts what the real world is and tries to bridge the disconnect between the older generations and the generation now and, and trying to let people know that, yeah, it's not always happy-go-lucky. It's not always teenagers on their phone. We go through real stuff too. I know people have branded this generation you know, Generation Z, I prefer to call y'all the what we not going to do generation, because the one thing that I am in awe of that I admire, I admire many things, but I'll say the one thing that really strikes me about this generation is that you all have such a clear cut idea of boundaries that previous generations did not really have. What, you know, what's your, your guess or your thoughts about why this generation seems to have so much agency? Oh, um, I mean, I think we have so much agency because we know what's at stake. Um, I think a lot of people tend to say Gen Z is the future, but we are the present and we are making decisions now and we are trying to make a change now. So the future generations don't have to go through what we are going through right now. And I think Gen Z was forced to grow up a lot faster than a lot of other generations due to everything that we have seen in the last couple of years. But um, 
we take that with pride and, and, and responsibility. And we know that, yes, even though we are going to be the change makers one day, the lawmakers one day, we are going to be making the critical decisions in our world to make it a better place. Um, we know that we are not perfect and we're going to make mistakes and that we are kids and we have to give ourselves grace, but we do not take any BS. And, and we are very clear about what we want to see in the world and uh, whether that that's in politics or in media or in our households or our schools. We have this clear idea of what equality and equity is and in intersecting that. So I'm proud to be a, a, a part of a generation that is so smart and, and is so engaged and, and finds it so important to really try to make a change in any way possible. Yeah, I mean, I thought about it one day from this perspective. The first presidential election I voted in was was Bill Clinton um, in 1996. And for a lot of people in this generation, their first presidential race was 2016, some even 2020. So I can't imagine how traumatic that experience in itself would be because of, as you again, you pointed out the stakes. I mean, the stakes for uh, the black community are always high. They're always, it seems to be, I, I said this the other day, I'm so tired of going to the voting booth with life or death being on the ballot, right? And so that that is just not a, a comfortable feeling, but as high stakes as it was in 1996, it was nothing compared to what it is now. So I, a, a part of me just wonders like how much that has shaped what your generation is absorbing in terms of trauma on top of a pandemic, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. I, I, I think, again, we were forced to grow up a lot faster due to our socioeconomical climate and, and politics and just the world around us. And in the height of a pandemic, we were um, on the front lines fighting for our lives and fighting for our brothers and sisters. And, and I think in New York City, there is a big clock counting down the days we have left on earth. There's a lot of things that we we are going through that we see that we witness that it, it's hard to digest and, and it is traumatic. But again, I, I think it's about taking the approach of trying to make a change now so it won't be as hard for our future children or our nieces and nephews or our cousins or just the global community. It's important to, even though the world feels as though it's very dark, we try to be the light in the darkness, or at least I try to be the light in the darkness. I mean, I can't say that every day is is easy, I, I, especially in the, the height of the pandemic and in 2020 and all the George Floyd protests were going on. I, I found myself just feeling helpless and, and was so frustrated that I couldn't do anything. And I found myself in my car just bawling my eyes out because I couldn't go anywhere because it was unsafe to go places. I couldn't go out to protest at the time because we didn't know if they were safe or not. It, it, it was a lot of emotion and a lot of unpacking that I still feel like we need to continue to do. But I think we are trying to make the baby steps to do so and heal um, and, and again, try to make the world a better place. Now you're in your freshman year at, at USC. I can't imagine what it's like going to college in the midst of a pandemic. And you already have a very busy um, acting career 
What are you majoring in at USC? Yes. So I am majoring in the School of Dramatic Arts and I am minoring in African-American studies. Oh, okay, cool. I shouldn't be surprised by the first part. I mean, do you have some desire to maybe one day be behind the camera? Is that part of the reason why you might have chosen that major? I do want to be behind the camera in my Instagram bio, as as funny as that sounds. Um, I have future filmmakers, so I do want to try it out. That's why I think I might change my major from the School of Dramatic Arts to the School of Cinematic Arts, uh, just to learn behind the camera, cinematography, editing. You learn it all over there um, at the film school. So I think I might do that uh, because, I mean... I know a lot about acting and it's cool to be in an 8 a.m. theater class, but um, I'd rather be learning more things that I can I can take away from school and, and try to fulfill that dream of being a filmmaker. So what is this, the social aspect of being a freshman at USC like, especially for somebody who has such a robust acting career as you do? I mean, it's been amazing. It's been so much fun. I am so grateful to be able to attend college and and get the college experience and and get that social aspect that I feel like I was missing out on because since 2018, I think I've been pulled in so many different directions and always working and always traveling. So I have like my friends back at home and a few friends in LA, but I didn't have a, a, a big group of friends to where I was like, let's go hang out or let's go bowling or let's go do this. And now I have that. So that makes me extremely happy. Speaking of euphoria, I know that Drake is an executive producer and at least I I read that he did a table read with you guys. What was that like? We did. It was so odd. So we had, um, we shoot on the lot in LA and I was told we were having our season two table reads right before we went into lockdown. And I pull up, my mom drops me off and I just see a whole bunch of like, just black cars and black escalades. And I'm like, okay, like who's here? Something's going on. And then next thing you know, it's Drake and his homies and um, his business partner, Future the Prince. And I thought it was really cool because I'm a Drake fan outside of him being a producer on the show. So I was kind of geeking out on the inside, but played it cool as a cucumber. Okay, that's how you got to do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I was, I thought he was just like coming by to say hi, but he literally sat through our, I think, two and a half, three hour table read, really engaged. He never stepped out. Of course, we had breaks and he bought everybody pizza and stuff and ate with us. So that was really cool. But you would think like he's Drake. He's a businessman. He is one of the most known people in the world. He would be on his phone. He would need to be taking phone calls. He would need to be stepping out, but he didn't do any of that. And I was like, that's super duper cool. And, and, and cool to see somebody so invested in something that they put their name on. Cause people can put their name on something and not show up, just put their name on, on a project for vanity purposes as a producer. But he seems to be really engaged and and, and a fan of the show. So that helps as well. I don't know how often you have these moments, but are you ever in a room, be it with a Drake or any of the other 
maybe high profile people um, that most of us know. And you think like, I can't really believe I'm in this room (laughs) that this is happening. Yes. No, I have those moments a lot, but I think the epitome or the pinnacle of that moment for me um, was when I attended the Met Gala in September and you do the red carpet and then you're in a room literally with just tons and tons of people that are well known all around the world. Like, I mean, I would be having a conversation with Miss Ava and then Frank Ocean was sitting at my table. And then you would, you would see Steph Curry and Aisha Curry and and Aisha Curry. It was just, I was overwhelmed. I think it was a lot of emotions of it being my first Met Gala, me being nervous. I had just chopped my hair off. I was feeling all type of emotions. And then I walk in a room and and then it's everybody that I, I love and inspire me. And I was just I was it was too much for me to handle. <laughs> I actually had this conversation with with Ava DuVernay um, before about there are sometimes people who are so famous, like you don't even know what to say to them. And like, should I bring up the weather or because right. my example was with Sade, like I'm a huge Sade fan. I don't know what I would ever say to this woman if I'm in her presence. I was like, are we supposed to just talk about movies? Like, what are we supposed to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) So how do you find that topic? Like, you're at a table, as you said. Okay, it's you. It's Frank Ocean. Who else was at your table at the Met Gala? Um, It was me, Frank Ocean, uh, Miss Ava, uh, Rita Ora. Mm. I I forget who was all at the table, but oh, Gigi Hadid. We had a we had a really cool table, but I'm a big Frank Ocean fan. So like the whole week, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to say to him? Like, (laughs) so you're practicing in your mind. (laughs) Favorite song. Do I do I say like I really love biking solo? I'm like, no, Storm, that would be weird. Like. I do. I bring up one of the albums, but he was super nice, super cool. I told him of uh, how big of a fan I was. And then we just engaged in normal conversation. So I think it's, I, I think it's best if, uh, in my case to let someone know how much I appreciate their work and then see if a conversation morphs from that. Or if not, I know that I was able to meet a person, give them their flowers and, and move on. So how are you about asking for photos? Or do you? I don't ask. I don't ask. I think in settings to where I am in a place where photos are being taken because it's an event where a lot of people are around and am having a conversation with somebody, then of course a, a photographer will come up and be like, oh, let's get a photo with you two. And in my mind, I'm like, yes, because I'll be able to have that photo. But I I shy away from asking people for photos because I know like it's people are a little weird about that. And it's, and you know how it feels being on the other side of it. Yeah. And, and people like Frank Ocean and Beyonce and Rihanna and, and those type of people, they get asked for photos every day, all the time. So I'm sure they appreciate to be in a situation or in an, in an environment to where that's not happening. So I try to not ask people. Yeah, I, I do the same thing. And I, it's like I try to like you play it cool. Like, oh, I've been here before. And inside I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm internally screaming the entire time. But, but there are certain people that are on my Listen, I'm just going to have to take the L or whatever. I'm asking them for a photo. If I ever am in Rihanna's presence, 
I'm asking for a photo because I don't know when this will ever happen again. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Exactly. Thankfully, I, the same night I met the queen Beyonce, I met Rihanna at the NAACP awards and we shared a publicist. So I kind of knew that I might have an encounter with her, but wasn't too sure. And I was going over to talk. She was sitting next to Lizzo and I was went over to just like introduce myself and say hello to the both of them. And then I got pulled into a photo and I was like, this is my dream. Like, this is the life. (laughs) That's a hell of a photo right there. All right, uh, Storm, there's more. I definitely want to talk to you about um, food for one, because at least from what I can see uh, from your uh, food show on Facebook like you are an amazing cook okay and so <laughs> I need to get it seems like you are I, I'll put it this way you look like you know what you're doing in the kitchen so um, there's definitely some food stuff I want to ask you and certainly want to ask you about the numerous projects that you have coming out in 2022 uh, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Storm Reed. So Black History Month is an unusually busy month for me and for a lot of black people who are in a similar space as me. It's a big month for academics, black experts and the like, because so many schools, universities, colleges, organizations, companies or what have you want people like me to come in and give keynote addresses, sit for Q&A's to captivate an audience with our life story, our expertise how we feel about the state of black America, race relations, all of that. It all goes down in Black History Month, which is a busy speaking engagement month. Now, that's all fine and well. But to borrow a quote from Fat Joe, yesterday's price is not today's price. And I got a story to tell about how some of y'all who represent these entities need to stay out of my DMs, out of my email inbox until you get your budget up. Now, I've recently become acquainted with Dr. Yaba Blay, this dope ass sister who is an academic and an author. And on her Instagram live, the conversation was titled a Black History Month intervention. And baby, let me tell you, Dr. Blay had a word for those of us who find our services being called upon a lot in the month of February. Take a listen. I've been in positions where I have paid when I say loving black people cause Not that I got paid, but I have paid. So not only did they not have a budget, but in order for me to get from where I was to where they were, I have paid to go because I saw it as an opportunity. Because I saw it as another dot, bullet point, line item that I could put on my CV. Right. This is what I'm going to say. Others can say it how they say it as we get along. I just need whoever is in the audience and are put in this position to have to ask people to do something. Understand how insulting it is for you to offer someone with the level of training and the number of books on this bookshelf and the amount of information that's in my head, the type of work that I put in to prepare, how insulting it is to say you don't have a budget, how insulting it is to say I have a budget, but all I can give you is $500? What I'm about to do is $500. Swear for God, this still continues to happen to me. 
People will hit me asking me if I can give a keynote, socialize with some donors and leaders in the business community before and after the keynote, sign some autographs, take some pictures, compose a song, do the kid and play kickstep. And then when I'm like, what's up on that honorarium? Their response is... Or as Dr. Blaze said, they'll hit you with that. I don't really have a budget right now or here's some gas money. Playboy and playgirl. I damn sure ain't getting out of bed for three digits. I won't even wake up for that amount. I won't even raise my eyebrow. I won't even open a lid. Not too long ago, this woman reached out to me asking me if I could speak at her event. Now, she had already reached out to my publicist and we declined the event because she didn't have the budget. Instead of just taking the no as a no, she hit me up on Instagram and mentioned that we had a mutual friend whose name she dropped. And then she tried to snitch on my publicist by adding she'd been turned down and wanted to reach out to me directly as if somehow she was being blocked by my publicist. Now, she had a McDonald's budget, but what she wanted in return was no boo. No, playgirl. For one, my publicist brings me everything, whether people are willing to pay my quoted speaking engagement price or not. She leaves it up to me to decide. Second of all, you ain't slick trying to undermine her. The answer is still no. Complete sentence. And what I also really hate, and in her live, Dr. Blay addressed this, These companies put black people in charge of their diversity and inclusion programming during the month of February, and then they give them a non-existent budget, thus putting that black person in the awful position of having to beg a black expert to give freely of their time when that company has plenty of money. To me, it just shows that having any kind of black history related programming is not that important. Because best believe when it comes to white speakers and white academics and the like, they pay them 20 grand, 35 grand or whatever it is. And don't even blink. Now, here's the long and short and in between. Black people need to be paid for their talent and expertise. I totally understand that everybody doesn't start out blessed with a Super Bowl budget. I make allowances for that, especially for causes and issues I believe in. I will do pro bono from time to time. But there are some people, even my own people, who would try to take advantage. It's unfortunate that some HBCUs will pay 100 grand to bring in Ludacris. But somebody like Dr. Blay or other leading black academics and experts and authors and historians, they'll stick them in the jump seat on the plane, pay for a meal and then offer them a thousand dollars to speak. Now, I'm not saying they should get Ludacris money, but don't offer them and definitely not me some shit that shows you don't respect my time or my talent. And that's that on that. Now back to more with Stormbreed. One thing I'm curious about, especially as it relates to the pandemic, is is what people started doing and stopped doing during the pandemic. So we'll start with the first one. Like, what did you stop doing in the pandemic that you were doing pre-pandemic? I mean, I think this goes for everybody, but I, I stopped going out. Not that I went out a lot, but I like I just literally did not go anywhere. I I would go to like friends' houses and 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 go hang out sometimes. I just I stayed at the house and I was like, we can FaceTime, we can text, but I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna be safe. Um, so I, I stopped going out, and I think that was for the majority of the world, hopefully, uh, to stay safe. Well, I know things are, have opened back up obviously a little bit does it feel weird when you're around people now because you stopped going out 
Or I should say large groups of people, maybe. Yes and no. I was very nervous for two reasons to go to school um, in in the fall, because one, we had been in a pandemic and I hadn't been around a whole bunch of people. And USC has a lot of students. And then two, I hadn't been in a school environment since the sixth grade. I was um, homeschooled from six to 12. So I was doing school on sets and at home and just wherever I needed to be. Uh, so I was, I was a little scared to just be at school cause I hadn't been in a school environment. Um, but now I've gotten used to it and, and USC is, is very, um, good with their COVID protocols and us wearing our masks and getting tested weekly. Um, and I think it, it's an everyday struggle of like, do you shake somebody's hand? Like I'm a hugger. So like, I'm used to like giving people hugs, whether I know you or not, like I'm introducing myself. Hi, I'm storm. I don't really know if I'm trying to give people hugs right now. So I don't know if it's like a, a fist bump, a handshake. A lot of people like to do the elbow. It's just, I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> the elbow is the one that feels the most awkward to me. Yeah, I don't like the elbow. The elbow is weird. I'd rather just like not do anything at all. This whole situation, I don't like. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I've gotten to a point now where I just ask people. I say, I just, I'll say, hey, I'm, I'm Jamel. So what are we doing? We hugging? We doing this? Like, what are we doing? <laughs> and then I let them dictate. Right. But the elbow one, it feels just so like human beings don't elbow each other. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> Maybe I need to start asking people. I think it's because I'm so used to being a hugger um, or at least a, a, a nice, friendly handshake. So maybe I'll start asking like, hi, I'm Storm. How are we doing this? We hugging? We handshaking. Let's not do the elbow, though. I think I'm going to start asking people not to do the elbow. Hugs might have gone the wayside. Clearly, you going out on whatever basis you were before that went by the wayside. So what's something you started doing during the pandemic? Like, for example, I finally learned how to make the perfect omelet. It took a while. I finally learned uh, because breakfast was never something when it came to cooking. I focused on making but my my husband loves omelets so i'm just like let me learn let me figure out how to make the perfect omelet so what was something that you started doing during the pandemic I think I started to move my body more. I think being cooped up in the house, thankfully I was still able to work um, from home with like my production company stuff and development and, and finishing up my senior year. So I have things to occupy my time, but I also have a lot of free time. So I thankfully at home have a lot of free space and free range to just move my body. So whether that was like working out or doing a, a workout app or jump roping or um, just moving my body, dancing, whatever the case was, it felt good to do because I think if I didn't, I would be one out of shape and then worse off in my mental state, especially because it, the pandemic was just so new and so confusing and something that I did not like at all. So I, I, I worked out and moved my body a lot. Well, it's clear that uh, your work didn't take a backseat during the pandemic. I know recently or somewhat recently, I should say, uh, you joined the cast of The Last of Us. Right. So what can you tell us about or what can you tell me about that project? I had not been familiar with the video game before the opportunity uh, to play Riley presented itself. I mean, my brother is a big video game fanatic. So as soon as I got the email about them wanting to 
possibly uh, want me to be a part of the show, I, I called him and I was like, do you know about this video game called The Last of Us? He was like, yes, it's so cool. The story is so cool. That's so dope. Um, and I asked a few other people and they had the same reaction. And then I did my own research and saw how cool the game was. So, um, I mean, The Last of Us, it, it takes place in a post-apocalyptic world and, and it really is about love and, and fighting and, and perseverance and, and, and trying to figure out what to do with little to no resources and working with Bella Ramsey, who is the main character in the show. She is just so sweet and such a dream and so talented. And I play her best friend, Riley, and I'm in episode eight and we go on this little adventure, uh, but it's been so much fun to be a part of. And I'm, I'm just glad to be a part of another HBO show. So I'm excited. So it, it seems like um, that you've carved out a little bit of a lane in the kind of thriller category if you will, with Invisible Man and Don't Let Go. And are you drawn to those movies yourself? Like, is that, is this a genre that you, you kind of always wanted to explore? Um, no, I think it's just something that fell in my lap. Um, I don't really go out or, or talk to my team about like, oh, we got to find another thriller. I think it's just the opportunities that present themselves. Um, and thankfully, I've been a part of some really cool thrillers, uh, but I, I don't think that is the only thing I want to do. Of course, um, I've been in some dramatic pieces. I think Euphoria is probably the most dramatic thing that I'm a part of, um, but I am not stuck to just being a part of thrillers. Like I, I'd like to be a part of a comedy, try that one day. Um, so I'm open to any and everything. One of the things I love that you said is that when you're deciding what to do, you do it with intention. Why was that always so important to you? It's important for me to be a part of intentional and, and purposeful projects because I think as artists and especially as storytellers, we have the opportunity to say something and not say something in a preacher way or trying to drive a message. But there's a lot going on in the world and we can address the things going on in the world in the things that we are a part of or the things that we create. So that's my approach to what I choose to be a part of as an actress and as a new producer, just to try to be of service in my work and represent the world in a real way, in a real light. I think Hollywood is trying to do its best or making baby steps to be more inclusive and die and have a lot of diversity. But I think if you are um, being inclusive in a way just for face value, it, it does the situation or the character or the or the person that is being depicted um, a disservice because if you're not representing that person in an a real whole light, then you're not really representing them. So um, I just try to be a part of the things that really matter to people that have the impact like A Wrinkle in Time had. Like people were impacted by that movie and you might make something and you might not know how much of an impact or how much empowerment you, you uh, um, put on a person, but to have the opportunity to do so is really cool to me. Well, I mean, uh, I'm glad you brought up impact and it's clear that representation matters to you. And I I mean, you have a lot of different partnerships with brands, New Balance, you know, other things, Maybelline. And the one that I was most struck by was the one you have with Dark and Lovely. And that's because 
Well, not not only because that's a brand that I, I mean, I grew up on basically, and it's a legacy brand, but also because you spoke about the challenges that women of color that black women face in the business. And I especially relate to that as somebody who's in television. And I remember the first year I was at ESPN, like they didn't have any black stylists or people who knew frankly about black skin. And I think people on the outside do not understand just how vital that is in the business. So I just, uh, uh, one, want to thank you for using your voice to bring attention to that. And just also ask you is that, you know, what made you decide to speak up about that? Cause that's one of those things that a lot of black actresses know, but not many actually speak up about it. It's becoming more prevalent, but you, you certainly were very forceful in what you said. I think it's important. And I think I I got to a point where I was just tired of going to set, having to bring my own products and having my mom do my hair in the trailer. Like my mom is here to make sure that I'm safe and that I'm covered and to sign all the contracts and just be there as my mom. She's not there to be my hairstylist, even though she wants me to feel comfortable on camera. So she'll do it. And I'm her daughter, but I think it, it the hair disparity in our industry um, is something that needs to be fixed and it needs to be fixed fast because um, it, it feels, I think I said this, but in a different interview, it, it feels dehumanizing to sit in a chair and have someone try to do your hair and and you're told that they know how to take care of black hair care and then you sit in the chair and they simply don't um i remember i was on a set and i was supposed to be on the on the rougher looking side but i think it goes back into perpetuating stereotypes because even though i was supposed to look a little rough my hair didn't have to be as crazy as they thought it was supposed to be and and my mom obviously knew that there were people on that particular set that just didn't know how to take care of my hair so she woke me up a little bit more early before my call time and my pickup and did my hair in a way that it didn't look like I had just left the beauty salon, but it looked like it was put together. And I got to set and it was a whole uproar because they were like, this is not how her hair is supposed to look. This is not how um, somebody's hair is supposed to look when they're in the circumstances in which the character is in. And I'm just like, that's when you go back to like not knowing us not having our experience. And um, I think the first time I realized that I didn't have to go through the struggles of someone just not knowing how to take care of my hair or take care of my skin is when I was on a wrinkle in time. And, you know, Miss Ava is all about us, for us, will always be for us. And she had Miss uh, Lalette Little John as the head um, of the makeup department and Miss Kim Kimball as the head of the hair department. And that's when I realized I was like, oh, this is not foreign for people to have the opportunity for black people to have the opportunity to be on sets to make other black actors feel comfortable. So now I always request my team and and if you don't value my team and, and value how I feel about the way I present myself on screen, then then we don't align and, and it's not a project that I, I want to be a part of. It was always wild to me that you had, you know, a hair and makeup 
you know, artist in the industry that easily could say, I don't know how to do black hair. I don't have experience with black skin and they would still be hired. Right. We know a black makeup artist and hairstylist could never get away with that. Never. Yeah. And so it is. And most black hairstylists and makeup artists, they know how to do any number of people because that's how they have to make their money. But it, the same is not equitable when it comes to white hairstylists and makeup artists. So it just blew my mind that there was actually some resistance to this in the industry. So it's it's really helpful that you spoke up about it. You mentioned your mom and I, you know, reading the story about how you guys moved to L.A., you know, you, after you express your dreams of wanting to be an actress, a lot of moms would not do that because, you know, kids, their dreams come and go. Like you said it, I think at three years old that you wanted to be an actor. Um, I can't even remember shit I did at three. I'm just going to say like, I, I, nothing, nothing. I like <laughs> not, not a thing. So I think that's amazing that you had uh, so much clarity at such a, a, a young age. Now, you and your mom also work together on your production company as as partners. So what's it like? having both a, you know, mother-daughter relationship, a family relationship, and a business uh, relationship. It's really cool to have my mom as my business partner. I think um, in most scenarios, we are aligned and, and we think alike, especially in the business aspect of things. But we are also there to help each other grow and learn and, and have conversations. If we don't agree on something, we talk it out and we try to figure it out and we try to come to an an understanding of each other rather than I think so many times you see when families work together or or when people with close relationships work together, it, it fails epically because you have that personal relationship and then that personal relationship goes into the business and you have these just fierce feelings about these people and, 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 and what something should be or how somebody should be treated. But she still acts as my mom in the business side of things. Like that's still mom. She is always saying I am mom first, but now we have this business and we're doing this business together. We're going to learn together. We're going to grow together. We're going to make mistakes together. But as long as we're doing it together with the understanding that I'm your mom, you're my daughter, that comes first. And we are operating in a space of love then I think that's how we're going to continue to be successful. Did you all have to set any particular boundaries so that certain lines aren't crossed or things aren't blurred, you know? My mom is my mom and she knows me. I know her. She's been here since day one. She, I mean, I think it's been a a little bit of a transition with me moving out of the house and now being on campus. But I literally spent almost every day with her up until end of uh, 2021. So I don't think there was any boundaries that needed to be created because we know each other. We love each other. And we know if there's something wrong, if there's a problem, which there rarely is we're going to talk it out and we're going to figure it out um so how did your mom handle it when you moved out (laughs) it's so funny it is so funny because she was like girl i'm not worried about you i am fine i am gonna she tried to play it all cool (laughs) i'm gonna be living my best life and i'm gonna be out with the home girls i'm gonna be on a yacht somewhere so i was like okay okay so i would just like the first the like probably a month up until moving in, I would just test the waters like, girl, you're going to miss me. And like, oh, you're going to miss me. She's like, girl, no, I'm not. And then I started to feel it 
I was I was an emotional wreck. I was in my room packing my my clothes, just sobbing, just sobbing. And she was on the couch watching TV and she was like, Storm girl, you'll be fine. So she she helped me with all my stuff. And then I moved in and got everything situated. It took a lot of time to get all my stuff moved in and organized correctly. And then she was like, okay, let's go get some Roscoe's before I go home and you go back to campus. And I was like, okay. And we go into Roscoe's, um, we get a to-go order and she is on her phone. We're just sitting in the car and then she just starts crying. She just starts boo-hooing. And I was like, I felt bad, but I also was like, there it is. Right. Well, party felt good. Like she is going to miss me. (laughs) (laughs) But we, we've created a good balance. I mean, I think we talk all the time because there's always business going on. I mean, I sometimes visit on the weekend. Sometimes she'll come and, and we'll meet for lunch in the middle of the week. We'll FaceTime. So we are only, I think, 30, 45 minutes away from each other. So it's not like I'm across the state where uh, I think she would miss me more. Or I would miss her more. But she did definitely feel it uh, that day I moved out. She felt it for sure. All right, before uh, I get you out of here, or we'll go through some very quick fun questions in a second, but last sort of serious question, if you will. You've been acting for a long time. So how often do you think about how long you want to do this? I mean, you've already done it over a decade. I know that I want to continue to be in the business in some capacity for a really long time. Um, I mean, I love acting. Acting is my passion. So I do see myself doing that for a while. But now I've created other avenues for myself as in my production company and hopefully directing down the line to where I'll have different options to not always be in front of the camera. But I mean, I love the entertainment industry. I love to be able to create create content that again is purposeful that is impactful that can change lives and in ways that I might not even know so I think I'll be in the entertainment industry for a a really long time but another goal of mine is to one open a restaurant and go to culinary school so I'm gonna try to figure all of that out simultaneously while acting producing and hopefully directing (laughs) all right we're gonna talk about cooking in just a second but Every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. I put them through what I like to think of as a torturous but fun experience. It's a game I play with every guest. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices and you have to pick one. Don't invent a third choice. It's these two and that's it. You hear me, Storm? That's it. Okay? Okay. These questions are designed to put you on the spot. So you just brought up cooking. So the first question is better ingredient, garlic or truffle oil? Truffle oil. But I love garlic, but truffle oil. What is your favorite thing to put truffle oil on? I love to put truffle oil on pizza and pasta. Pizza? Yeah. Like if you just drizzle a little truffle oil on your pizza, chef's kiss. You should try it. Where do you stand on truffle fries? I think those are magnificent. I, anything truffle, anything truffle I am down for. Like I have this weird thing where I have a really good sense of smell. So I can smell a truffle literally from a mile away. (laughs) Somebody is cooking up some truffles in the vicinity. Please take me to where that is. You have said before, you learned a lot of your cooking from your mother, right? Who's an excellent cook. So as it stands right now, 
the better cook, you or your mom? My mama for sure, hands down. That would be disrespectful for me to say it was me. My mama knows how to cook. She's from North Carolina, the South. My mom knows how to throw down. Do you try to make her mac and cheese? Because I, I, I think that's one of your favorite dishes that she makes. Yes. One of my favorite dishes, that's all I used to ask for when I was little, is my mom's mac and cheese. Specifically, my mom's mac and cheese. I don't like to eat anybody else's mac and cheese because I just don't want to be rude. That's that, that's wise, though. You can't eat everybody's mac and cheese. Like, you can't have everybody's greens. It's what it is. Not that I'm going to be rude and say that it's nasty, but I think I, I don't have a poker face, so you're <laughs> going to know that I'm not going to like it. Um, but I, I have tried to emulate her mac and cheese, me and my sister have done it we were pretty successful but there's nothing like my mom's mac and cheese so i think the more she cooks it and she only cooks it on special occasions um or sometimes on a sunday dinner so one day i'm just gonna sit down and write everything down and like have the recipe so i know how to make it just like her so one thing I had to figure out, because my mother's mac and cheese is excellent, too. I had to make it alongside her because most people who and you probably know this for somebody who cooks a lot is that there are dishes I could ask you to cook. You have no idea what the measurements are because you just going by feel. And that's how it is for them as well. Like, because whenever I would ask my mother about, OK, how much of this, how much of that? She would be like, ah, just a dash, a pinch, you know, add a little more till it tastes whatever. And it wasn't until I made it literally side by side in conjunction with her that I understood how to make it. And I I couldn't tell you any measurements, but I can go through and make it. Right. And so now I'm at a point where I I mean, I'll give her a slight edge, but I'm on her neck (laughs) when it comes to mac and cheese. I'm on her back. (laughs) Maybe I should do that. Maybe the next time she makes it, I'm going to be right there. Be right there. and, And try to make it with her. Okay. Next one. Jennifer Hudson's and I am telling you or Tiana Taylor's never would have made it. Oh my God. Oh, both are great. But funny story is I used to sing. I am telling you when I was a little girl, cause I saw dream girls all like, it, I watched it a lot. So I used to just go around and say, I am telling you, I'm not going. I used to just sing that all the time. So I would have to pick that one. Yeah. Some of us are old enough to remember when Jennifer holiday did it <laughs> in the original dream girls, but that's a fantastic song. And I didn't know until I was doing research for this interview that Tiana Taylor had done never would have made it. Because that's, I know the Marvin Sapp version. Right. Yeah. No, Tiana is such a talented artist. I'm actually working on a project with her, um, but she is incredible. Both, uh, if I had to choose, it would have to be, um, I am telling you, but both are our chef's kiss. <laughs> Waffle House's all-star breakfast or the surf and turf burgers from your uncle's restaurant, Burger Baby. I'm sorry, uncle. I love your restaurant, <laughs> but I am. Oh, uncle. damn. <laughs> I am an all-star Waffle House girl through and through. Wow. Your uncle going to be so hurt. <laughs> he'll, be, he'll be fine. He knows that, like, those are my two main stops is Burger Baby and Waffle House. But Waffle House is forever my favorite thing. You know, Waffle Houses are a little sketchy. They might not be the cleanest places. Uh, yeah. I still enjoy it. <laughs> Especially the Atlanta Waffle Houses. It goes down. <laughs> But the food is good. <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth the risk. I, I understand. And finally, uh, your girl, your homie, uh, Zendaya, in her role in Euphoria or her role as MJ in Spider-Man? Oh, 
Both are such beautiful roles. Um, but I would say her role in Euphoria, because I, I get to witness how much love that she puts into Rue. And it's really amazing to see. And just her her whole tra- her her whole trajectory has just been incredible to watch because I mean, we know her, or at least I know and admired her from Shake It Up. So to see her transition to Shake It Up and, and Casey Undercover to The Greatest Showman to Spider-Man to now Rue now she's an Emmy award-winning actress. Like that's a pretty big deal and an anomaly in itself to go from Disney to being an Emmy winner. So I would say Rue, because she puts a lot of hard work into the role. I think she's just an all-around super dope person. This is the close relationship that you two have, you know, bring even more life to the fact you're playing her sister in Euphoria. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's pretty surreal for me to have her in my corner and have her in my life and have her as a big sis because I I looked up to her like she was the end all to be all for me when it came to role models and and to now be able to work with her in 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 that capacity and be her her little sis in that capacity but for me to just be able to text her right now or call her or FaceTime and for her to like pick up or call me back or or check in on me that's a really cool feeling because it's good to to have role models but to know them personally and for that person to be consistent and actually love and care about you and so support you is is something that is I hope everybody can experience one day so I love her so much and um she's just so great <laughs> yeah I love both of those roles but I guess as a comic book nerd what she brought to MJ is something that's never been brought to it and so I, I that's what to me makes it stand out even more and MJ wasn't very relatable to me but until then, I mean, I lo- like the character, don't get me wrong, but she just brings just like a different boldness to it that I think is just really, really marvelous. Well, Storm, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. This was such a great conversation and you are so amazing. And the crazy part is, is like you're barely scratching the surface. I'm like, oh my God, I'd hate to see your resume is already ridiculous now. I'd hate to see what it looks like 10 years from now. So I appreciate the time and and good luck in school and at USC and everything. And um, just continue to be great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I was so excited to be able to do this. I'm a huge fan of yours. So thank you. I appreciate it. All right, y'all. Storm is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Did y'all hear the story about the United States government handing out crack pipes or more specifically, did y'all hear that President Joe Biden was handing out crack pipes? Of course you did, because that shit was all over the Internet. Now, I expect right wing publications to distort the truth and give people half the facts. But fucking I'm bothered because black media outlets ran with that shit like they were subsidiaries of Fox News. 
and they failed to realize that they were complicit in some purposely racist media coverage of a very complex issue. So peep game. This lie that the Biden administration was just handing out crack pipes as part of a $30 million health initiative started last week. It started from a right wing publication called the Washington Free Beacon, which I'd never heard of before I started doing research to get to the bottom of this shit. Because as soon as I saw that headline, I knew something wasn't quite passing the smell test. So the Washington Free Beacon reported that a health and human services spokesperson confirmed that in these harm reduction packages, a part of this health initiative would include crack pipes. Now, let me quickly educate you all about harm reduction. For years, addiction experts have pushed harm reduction to help drug addicts. Some drug addicts can go cold turkey, but many cannot, even if they have a deep desire to get clean. Using science... Experts created harm reduction programs as a public health strategy. And what this strategy entails is accepting the fact that an addict is going to use drugs. And so they provide resources that not only reduce the harm to themselves, but also reduce the harm to others, such as providing overdose kits, needle and syringe distribution programs, medical assisted treatment where addicts can take medications such as methadone to reduce drug cravings and peer programs where addicts can be counseled by former addicts because they can relate to what they're going through through. Now, experts have discovered that the harm reduction approach significantly reduces overdoses and increases the likelihood that addicts will remain clean. The point of this is to approach drug addiction with humanity. It's no different than parents who give their teenagers condoms, educate them about sexually transmitted diseases. You could tell kids not to have sex, but we know that shit is usually unrealistic. So you arm them with the information and ways they can protect themselves. Same concept. So how do we get from a humane approach to drug addiction to Joe Biden handing out crack pipes to black people? Well, the Daily Beast did some digging. They talked to the folks at Health and Human Services and they confirmed that they did talk to the Washington Free Beacon. But the reporter who did the story never asked them about pipes, but they damn sure didn't say shit about pipes being in these harm reduction kits. Health and Human Services even showed the Daily Beast the exchange with the reporter where they told the reporter that all the kits must comply with federal and state laws, which means in a lot of places there wouldn't be no damn crack pipes because they are prohibited in many states and cities. And by the way, Health and Human Services never specified what was actually in the kits. But why tell the truth when a salacious lie is so much sexier? So the headline on the Washington Beacon story was Biden administration to fund crack pipe distribution to advance racial equality. So they immediately threw race in there because, of course, when you say crack pipe, that automatically means black people. Damn, that was racist as fuck. Of course, conservative media could not fucking resist. Free crack pipes, black people. I'm surprised Tucker Carlson didn't moan when he reported this story. Now, I expect people like Tucker Carlson to run with shit like this. But Black Enterprise, Shade Room, other black media outlets, y'all should have saw this shit coming. Nobody ever stopped to say, how did a story about helping addicts not harm themselves 
automatically turn into the government supplying black people crack pipes. Why were black people automatically assumed to be the face of the drug problem anyway, when statistically we know that shit isn't true. But it was another example of how quickly misinformation spreads. We also have to understand what the larger goal was, which was to turn black people against Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. And this is not to say that this administration is above criticism, but recognize the goal of the these right wing misinformation campaigns is to discourage black people from voting and to get us so sour on the political process that we don't want to participate. The point of it is to take away our desire to fight. So we just say, fuck it. They're going to do what they're going to do anyway. So why should I care? Part of resistance is political power, which is why conservatives are exhausting themselves and destroying democracy to get it. They don't want you voting. They want you disillusioned and misinformed. They want you to continue to repeat shit like Joe Biden handing out crack pipes. So you say, fuck the whole process. So please peep game and stay unbothered. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 75 and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live, you don't want to miss it I was born to get it And you don't forget it Sit back for a minute I was born to get it